You're listening to the podcast from King's Cross Church in Charleston, South Carolina. If you'd like to learn more about us, visit kingscross.org. Father, the greatest need that any of us have is to be reconciled to you. I'm all too aware of my own need for that and um, pray that at this time of year and really every Sunday that we are reminded of you meeting our needs in Christ. Let's pray that out of an overflow of our gratitude to you for that, that you would make us a generous people and a generous church. It would give us opportunities to be generous um, in this community, in this city, and, and to the ends of the earth. And would you make us good stewards, um, both as individuals and as a faith family, um, of those things that you give us, that we might glorify you by the way that we manage our life and our relationships and our influence, and yes, Lord, even our finances, in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we are um, continuing this morning in our Christmas carols series. Um, If you're just joining us, what we've been doing each week is just looking at a beloved Christmas carol and examining kind of the biblical truths that that form the foundation of it and, and considering together how it is that we might apply those truths to our life. This morning's carol is, O Come All Ye Faithful, and um, it It really is a call to worship that has a pretty cloudy origin story. So depending on um, which historical kind of trail you run down to figure out where it is that this hymn came from, the song was either written by Cistercian monks in France, um, perhaps as early as the 12th century, or by King John IV of Portugal in the 17th century, or by an Englishman who was working at a music college in the 18th century, or and personally, this is my favorite one. Some contend it is a secret call to arms sung by Roman Catholic Jacobites who supported Bonnie Prince Charlie being restored to the throne of England as the rightful heir to the House of Stuart. And so what they say is that come all ye faithful really meant come all ye Catholics and come see and adore him who was born king of the angels was really he who was born king of the Anglos as in the Englishman. And so it was a literal call for Catholics to flood back into England and, uh, and have a coup. Um, that's not our interpretation. And we're not going to study uh, 18th century English political conspiracy theories this morning. However, what we are going to do is consider uh, this biblical truth that's in your notes, if you're someone who likes to follow along, that Christmas is a call to worship. Christmas is a call to worship. We're told in the scriptures about at least two groups of people who responded to the very first call to come worship Jesus. We are told about the shepherds. We talked about them last week. There was an angel and then, <clears throat> excuse me, many angels who appeared to them in the skies over Bethlehem and heralded the birth of the Savior of the world. That was in Luke 2. 
And then over in Matthew's gospel, we find another group of people who come to worship this child. We're told that they are wise men from the east. Matthew 2, 1 and 2 says this. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. If you've been around for a while, you may know that I love the wise men, and I'm not going to go um, fully down that rabbit hole uh, this morning, although I think they're fascinating characters. But let me give you just enough context about the wise men that you'll understand why it is that I'm saying that they are responding to a call to worship. These wise men, as Matthew calls them, are almost certainly members of a Persian priestly class. They would have been well-educated in all manner of things, including astrology. And I don't mean like horoscopes. I mean like the study of the stars. They would have served, among other things, as advisors in the Persian court to the Persian king. Historically speaking, it is most likely that they would have arrived in Jerusalem in something like a military caravan. Almost certainly they would have been on horses, not on camels, as most of our nativity scenes show. And there was enough of a presence in this caravan that showed up in Jerusalem that it rattled people. Verse 3 of Matthew 2 says, When Herod the king heard that they were going around Jerusalem asking these questions, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. Don't think of this as like, Three guys on their own, on camels, traipsing across the desert. Three guys showing up in town don't rattle kings. This is a large presence of people at the center of which is these wise men. Verse 2 says, they were going all throughout the city saying, where is he who's been born king of the Jews? But if you keep reading, when you get to verse 4, it says that Herod assembled all of the chief priests and scribes of the people and inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So evidently, these wise men are going around asking about this newborn child, where can we find him who's been born both king and Christ, king and Messiah? Now here's the question. Why are these Persian wise men not just looking for a Jewish political and religious leader, but looking for him so that they might worship him? Like, how did they get there? I think, and this is speculation on my part, but it's speculation backed up by a fair amount of biblical scholarship. I think it's because they were heirs to the legacy of the Old Testament prophet Daniel. Daniel, if you know his life story, was a teenager in Jerusalem when Babylon conquered the city and exiled its most leading and promising citizens, both young people and adults, including people like Daniel, who, if you're um, wondering who he is, he's a guy of lion's den fame, Daniel in the lion's den. He had some friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Um, they're the ones that are of fiery furnace, furn- that's hard to say, fiery furnace fame. Um, the, you know, they survived the king's furnace. 
Daniel and his friends, according to Daniel chapter 1, were castrated and made eunuchs in service to the Babylonian king. They became literally wise men in the east. And the favor of God, if you read through Daniel's book, was on them. Daniel 1.17 says that God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. And Daniel 1.20 says, In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king of Babylon inquired of them, the king found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. Daniel in particular excels in this role, and the favor of God in particular is on Daniel. Daniel 2.48 says that the king gave him, Daniel, high honors and many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and the chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Daniel was the chief wise man in the east. He was a prophet of God. If you read through his book, he is famously faithful to follow and obey the laws of God, even while in exile and in the service of a pagan king. He finds himself ruler over the entire cadre of wise men in the east. And here's the part that's the speculation. I think, and many biblical scholars think, that he taught those wise men about his God. He discipled the wise men in the East. I think he would have taught them the scriptures that he knew. Scriptures like Numbers 24, 17. There was a prophet about God's anointed one who would come and said, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, a scepter, a ruler, a king, shall arise out of Israel. I think he taught them about the anointed one of God, the Messiah, this promised Christ. I think he told them that the God who saved his friends from Nebuchadnezzar's furnace, the God who had saved him from the lion's den, the God who had enabled him to accurately interpret the dreams of the king, the God whose finger wrote on the wall at Belshazzar's feast, that God was going to send a savior to destroy the enemies of God, to redeem his people, establish his kingdom, and make all things new again. That God would one day send not just Ah, king, Daniel would have told them, but the king, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, that God had in fact even revealed to Daniel what the end of days was going to look like. And he told them about his God. And the legacy of his discipleship of those men lingered for 500 years with wise men in the east when one day the star that, Jacob, that Daniel had told them about appeared in the sky. And they said, that's what we've been looking for. And they saw it. And they knew what Daniel had taught them. And they knew what it meant. There is one who's been born, who is king of the Jews. The promised savior king has come. And they responded with a call to come and worship him. In many ways, the entire Bible is a call to worship. 
Psalm 19.1 says the heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. Psalm 86.9 says all the nations that you have made God shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and glorify your name. In John 4, Jesus says that God the Father is seeking out those who will come and worship him. And in Luke 19, they try to get Jesus to tell his disciples to stop worshiping him. And he says, if I do, the stones will worship me. It's all a call to worship. The right and rightful response to the person and work of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit is worship. Christmas if it's nothing else, is a living, incarnate, heaven-displayed, angel-heralded call to worship. And this hymn that we've been singing for hundreds of years, O Come All Ye Faithful, articulates that call to worship, not just to wise men from the east or shepherds in a field, but to all those whose lives have been made new by God's grace through faith in this one who was born. There are four specific calls of worship in the hymn. We'll walk through them one at a time. The first one is this. It says, come all you faithful. We'll spend a little more time on this one than we will the other three because I think it is foundational to a right understanding of the gospel. Faithfulness, if you are keeping your eyes out for it as you read through the scriptures, is a defining characteristic of both God and the people of God in the Bible. Faithfulness is the standard by which the people of God are measured and for which they are either commended and and rewarded or condemned because of a lack of it. Those who lack faithfulness like the Pharisees in Matthew 23, are condemned by Jesus. They stand in sharp contrast to those, for example, in Matthew 25, who are welcomed into the kingdom of God with the praise of Jesus, hearing, well done, good and faithful servant. Faithfulness is required in 1 Corinthians 4. We see that it's a gift of the Spirit in Galatians 5, and the characteristic of those who receive the crown of life In Revelation 2, if you are not a Christian yet, and if you're not, please know that you're welcome here. This is a wonderful place to ask questions and to inquire about what it is that the scriptures teach us about God and his son Jesus. But if you're not a Christian yet, it's crucial that you understand that Christians are not people who used to sin but don't anymore. Christians are not people whose lives used to be messy, but now we have it all together. Christians are not people who look a certain way or vote a certain way or who know a certain amount of Bible verses. Christians are people who have been saved by God's grace through faith in Christ. That's it. That's our whole resume. I've been saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus. And it's because of the forgiveness that we have received, because of the grace in which we stand, because of the love of God that's been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, we try to live our lives in response to the grace that we have already received. We do not try to live our lives to earn grace because we can't. We live in response to a grace that has already come. 
If only the perfect were called to worship, this room would be empty. If only the innocent were called into ministry, this pulpit would be empty. But if faithfulness is the standard, then there's hope for you and for me. This is my only hope as your pastor, to be honest. If we look back over the last six years, there are things that I would do different knowing what I know now. There are some sermons that if I could preach them again, I'd tweak them. I just think they probably missed the mark. There are some staff members that I haven't led well, some members that I haven't cared for well, some lost people that I haven't reached well. But I can stand before God and say that to the best of my ability, with a pure heart and and clean hands, I tried to be faithful to God's call on my life to plant and pastor King's Cross Church. It's my only hope as your pastor. It's my only hope as a husband and as a father. Where, Where my shortcomings, I just know all too well. It's my only hope as a Christian. When I read Paul's lament over his own sin in Romans 7, I just think, yeah, brother, I get it. Why do I do these things I don't want to do and I don't do the things that I want to do? Who's going to save me from this? I hear you, Paul. Friends, this is your only hope too. It's not perfection. It's not hard work. It's not good deeds or great generosity or somehow the scales of your life being more good than bad. Your hope is that God will see you faithfully striving to love the Lord and to live according to his commands as a response to what he has always done, what he has already done, and say to you, well done, good and faithful servant. And in the end, even your faithfulness will come about because he does it, not you. 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 and 24 says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. Sanctification is the process in which you grow to be more like Christ. And Paul says, he's going to make that happen. May he sanctify you completely. May your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. And in Philippians 1.6, Paul says, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will see it through to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. So in the end, even the faithfulness itself is a gift from God that is just to be received and rejoiced over and redirected into the worship of him who's able to do far more abundantly than we can ask or imagine. So come, all you faithful, come and worship the king of angels. Second, we hear, come, all you joyful. There's this assumption in the Bible that those who know Jesus are joyful. That there's an assumption that the faithful are joyful. The shepherds and the wise men are joyful in Luke 2 and in Matthew 2. Those who discover the kingdom of God or who hear the gospel of God are joyful in Matthew 13 and Luke 8. 
Those who are persecuted because of their faith are filled with joy in Luke 6. Those who abide in the word of God are filled with joy in John 15. Those who hear their prayers answered are joyful in John 16. Those who encounter the resurrected Jesus are filled with joy in Matthew 28 and Luke 24. As you read through the New Testament, Christians are described as being filled with joy, overflowing with joy, rejoicing in joy, having an abundance of joy, making their prayers with joy, enduring with joy, considering trials as joy, growing in faith in joy, and on and on and on. This is all in the scriptures more than 200 times. Joy is given as a defining mark of those who know God and his Christ. Not Outrage or anger, joy. Not online snark in comment sections and posts, joy is the defining mark of Christians. Maybe you say, well, I, you know, I don't know that I feel real joyful. Kristen and I were just talking about this last night on our way home from a family Christmas event. We're talking about joy. You know, and like you can't just really choose to be joyful, but what we said in the car ride, but you can choose to pursue joy. My father disappeared a year ago this month. Some of you all know that. And yesterday was the one year anniversary of when we found him. He had had a stroke and died. I, I don't feel joyful this morning in particular, but I am joyful. It's not so much an emotion as it is a state of being and an, an identity. Happiness is an emotion. Yeah, so you can pursue joy. It can become a defining mark of your life. Are you joyful this Christmas? Have you heard the gospel of Christ? Have you discovered the kingdom of God in Jesus? Are you enduring a season of suffering or trials or even persecution, but you know that God is with you in it? Are you rediscovering the wonder of his word because you're cultivating or maybe recultivating the spiritual habit of just reading through the Bible? Can you give testimony to answered prayers in your life? Are you growing in the gospel? Are you more connected into into biblical community than you were this time a year ago or five years ago. That loved one who you lost, that you're grieving this time of year, do you know that even now they are with the Lord? Has God proven himself strong on your behalf this year? Has he been faithful even if your faith has wavered at times? If so, then come. Come, all you joyful, come and, and let's adore him together. There's a third call in the hymn. It says, come all you triumphant. Come all you triumphant. All those who are in Christ, all those who have repented of their sin and placed their faith in Christ alone as Savior and who have submitted to him as Lord, all of those, biblically speaking, are triumphant because he is triumphant. So all those who are in him are called triumphant as well. When Jesus walked out of the tomb, his victory over Satan, his triumph over sin, his overcoming of death itself was settled once and for all. 
And everything from that day to the day that he returns is a triumphal procession. And that imagery that's used in the scriptures comes from the time that they were, the New Testament was being written when Rome was the greatest power in the world. And what would happen is these Roman generals would go off to war and they would conquer. And then they would come back and they would have these huge celebrations and festivals and parades. And they would bring back loot from the cities that they had conquered and, and bizarre new animals that nobody in Rome had ever seen before. And they would save some of those that they used to be at war with. And they would bring them back too. And they would be in the triumphal procession as a demonstration not just of Rome's power, but of grace. That they had saved some of those who were condemned to die. And Paul uses that imagery in 2 Corinthians 2.14. He says, thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. In other words, Jesus has conquered. He has spared us from death. We are a living testimony to both his conquering power and his saving grace. Paul says he leads us in a triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. So now, if you are a Christian, your testimony, your life becomes the means by which people around you can learn about and hear about and experience the power and the grace of God. It's not that you triumph because you are so strong or you are so good or you're so pure, you're so determined that you can overcome anything. It's that he has already overcome. And so if you are in him, then you are triumphant because he has already overcome in your place. It's John 16, Jesus says, take heart, I have overcome the world. Philippians 4.13, Paul says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. In Romans 8.37, he says, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Friends, if you are a Christian or if you would become a Christian, you are on the winning side. Your king has overcome. Your savior has won the victory. He has triumphed. So Come. Come, all you triumphant, come and sing in exultation. And fourth, there's this call to come and worship this newborn king. It says, come, all you citizens of heaven. Citizens of heaven. One of the most remarkable and wonderful realities taught by Jesus and the apostles is that at the moment of your salvation, at the moment that you ask God to forgive you, not based on your goodness, but based on the perfection of Christ who lived and died in your place as your substitute, the moment of your salvation, when you believe that, you become a citizen of heaven, a citizen of the kingdom of God. If you've ever traveled internationally, you understand something of what is being taught here in the scriptures. You know, you have to get a passport. And so if you, if you jump on a plane and you fly to Asia or Africa or wherever, 
that passport tells people that though you are physically there, you're a citizen of the United States. And so it, it says, well, I know I may not be in the United States, but see, I'm a citizen of the United States, even though physically I'm in Hong Kong or Beirut or Buenos Aires or wherever you might be. And that's what being a Christian is like. Peter calls Christians sojourners and exiles. In 1 Peter 2.11, the writer of Hebrews says that Christians are people who long for a better country in Hebrews 11. And Paul says to the Philippians explicitly, our citizenship is in heaven in Philippians 3.20. This is an identity issue. If you are a Christian, you are a citizen of heaven more than you're a citizen of the United States or a resident of Charleston, Berkeley, or Dorchester counties, more than you're a graduate of your school, more than you're a member of your family, you're a citizen of heaven. Because all those things are passing away. All those identities are going to have to be made new. They're temporary, all of them. One day, there'll be no more, just like there's no more Rome. It would have been unimaginable to people walking around in Jesus' day to say, oh, one day, Rome is going to be an interesting thing you'll read about in a book. <laughs> Inconceivable. But once you're a Christian, you're a citizen of heaven for all eternity. That, that's never going to pass away. It should become the defining reality of your life. So come, the song says, all ye citizens of heaven, come and glorify God in the highest. Come and adore him. Adore him who, specifically? Very quickly, there are three titles that we're going to sing about here in just a minute. Three titles given to this one whose life, death, resurrection, and reign make all these realities possible. Make you being a citizen of heaven possible. Make you living as one who's triumphant possible. Make you joyful. Makes that possible for you to be faithful. There are three titles that are given to this one. First, we're called to come adore the king of angels. These supernatural beings, these created beings, the angels, whose appearance in Scripture, with one or two exceptions, like, for example, Mary, almost without exception, these angels cause human beings to fall prostrate on their face, trembling in abject fear and terror when they see angels. These ones who wage war in the spiritual realms against demons. These ones who serve as the messengers of God the Father. This host of warriors who are in the skies above Bethlehem, heralding the coming of Christ to shepherds. They fall down on their face before Christ their King. Because He rules over them. He is the King of the angels. We're also told that we should come adore Christ the Lord. This one who's been born is nothing less than the Lord himself in the flesh, the promised Messiah, the Christ, the one who Daniel said was one day going to come and make all things new again. This one who will right every wrong and dry every tear and free every captive and heal every wound and tear down every stronghold. This one at who one day every knee will bow and every tongue confess this one has been born, Christ the Lord. And third, we're, we're told to come adore the word 
of the Father who has appeared in the flesh. The the word of the Father, this child born in Bethlehem is the agent of creation. He, He is the one through whom and by whom and for whom all things were created. He is the one who holds all things together by the word of his power, the one from whose mouth will come a two-edged sword. He is the word of God in the flesh, John says in chapter 1. That's who we're coming to worship. The king of the angels of the supernatural realms, the promised Christ, the word of God. In the flesh, that's who we're called to worship. Not just at Christmas. That's who we worship every Sunday when we gather. Every day that we draw breath for all of eternity, he's the one that we're being called to worship because he's worthy. He who has been born king of the Jews, whose star arose and who like the wise men, we too have come this morning to worship. Let's pray. Father, we rejoice. I pray that we rejoice at this good news, the coming of the Christ. We are eager for him to come again. We worship him even now because we know that doing so glorifies you. And so we worship him as we remember that you so love the world that you sent him that all who believe in him may not perish. And we know that even now he has ushered in your kingdom. And we pray that through us, the people around us, our family and friends, our coworkers and our classmates might come to know him, that they might worship you as we sing and call to one another and indeed to the world to come and to worship. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to the King's Cross Church podcast. We hope that you were encouraged by the Word of God today. Take a moment to click the subscribe button on your screen, and you won't have to come searching for us next time. Until then, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all.